For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with my co-host, Mike Madison. You can always email us at podcast at enditforgood.com, and you can also visit us at our new website, enditforgood.com. Today, we are thrilled to welcome back author Johan Hari to the show. Uh, Johan is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs, which is now being adapted into a feature film as well as a nonfiction documentary series. Uh, his TED Talk, Everything You Think You Know About Addiction is Wrong, is also one of the most watched TED Talks of all time. And I've had um, many people tell me uh, has helped them understand, Johan, their own life. One of my good friends in um, my work here in Mississippi now and advocating for change told me that is the first time that she felt like she understood what had happened to her with her addiction was that it made, it finally made sense before that she had just thought what happened to me? She was a successful, you know, business person and, um, had, had fallen into addiction through traumas that had happened in her life right at that point. Um, and anyway, I hope that's an encouragement. I think for many people, it has Mm. been, um, something not just for those of us who haven't struggled with addiction to begin to reframe how we think about what's driving that for people, but, uh, for people who have, and are trying to make sense of the unraveling of their life around a substance, um, kind of what, what has happened to them. It's been really life giving, um, to people that I've talked to. So, um, Johan, welcome back to the show. I'm so moved to hear that, and I'm, it makes me so grateful to people like Professor Bruce Alexander, who I know you're going to be speaking to soon, who who made these scientific breakthroughs and 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 worked so hard in such difficult circumstances to keep communicating them to people. So, yes. um, you know, I'm just kind of a conduit from people like <laughs> Bruce to, to 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 people like your friend. But yeah. I'm really I'm thrilled to have played that role. Yeah. So one of the things that um, I've been really interested in now, so now I'm an advocate for a legal regulated drug market for all drugs beyond marijuana, you know, heroin, cocaine, all of that. It's kind of how this movement towards evidence-based drug policies, um, and drug policies always sounds very boring to people, like I can't connect to that at all. But really, um, and one of the things you were talking about in our last episode of The Violence Around the World is these are policy-driven harms. It's a lot harder to deal with harms that are coming just from people's hearts, um, you know, yeah. kind of what's going on with them. So much of these harms, of our drug harms, are coming from our drug laws. And so uh, yeah. ending them, there's such a huge lever to end so much of the harm because – it's not going to each person individually saying, stop doing what you're doing, whether it's violence from the market or whether it's, you know, using the substance yeah. and all the harms. But so much of all of the harm isn't driven by the, the people themselves. It's driven by the forces at play from this, you know, prohibited market. So I would love to hear you're writing about uh, other things now, but you are still deeply involved in this movement towards uh, educating people about what's really happening with the drug war and um, kind of seeing what's happening around the world related to the movement towards reform. So um, 
paint the picture for us. What do you see happening um, as, as this, as more research is out there now and as more people are changing their minds uh, in support of uh, a regulated market? You know, for many of them, they're, they're like me. They don't want people using drugs. But now we see this is the best option we have of the options out there of how we can handle drugs so the fewest amount of people are are harmed. Um, what what are you yeah. seeing? Well, I think one of the most important things for us to think about is the opioid crisis at the moment. And uh, obviously in Mississippi, this is a, a tragedy that's playing out every day. I've spent some time in some of the places that have been worst affected by the opioid crisis, like Monadnock in New Hampshire. And I think the single most important thing we can do to deal with this unbearable tragedy where, you know, average male life expectancy for white men has fallen for the first time since the Civil War as a result of this catastrophe, is learn, the single most important thing we can do is learn from the places that had disastrous opioid crises and dealt with them. And I went to those places very often. I mean, you're really good at explaining this, Christina, you know, because too often when other people talk about this in the US, um, when we talk about legalization or decriminalization, it's presented as like an abstraction, right? Like we're at a philosophy seminar at Harvard and we're talking about, well, what would that mean? And we start imagining what it would mean. And I always say to people, we don't have to imagine what it means. I've been to the places that did the alternatives. I've been to the countries that decriminalized and legalized. Um, I've seen I've seen how it works. So let's talk about a place that Switzerland, I'm a, as you know, my dad's from Switzerland, so I'm a Swiss citizen as well as obviously British. Um, so I know Switzerland very well. Let's talk about Switzerland. Switzerland in the year 2000 had a horrific opioid crisis, uh, massive catastrophic heroin use by that time. Um, and, um, you know, they had tried all the conventional American ways, arresting people, shaming them, imprisoning them. And the problem just kept getting worse and worse and worse. It got to the point where I mean, people remember like horrific images in Swiss parks of people like openly injecting in the neck, like just just horrifying situations. And after trying all this, Switzerland got its first ever female president, an amazing woman I got to know called Ruth Dreyfus. She was initially the health minister, then she became the president. And Ruth explained to Swiss people when you hear the word legalization, what you picture is like anarchy and chaos. What we have now is anarchy and chaos. We have unknown criminals selling unknown chemicals to unknown drug users, all in the dark, all filled with violence, disease and chaos. What she said is, I want to legalize drugs. And that will be the way we restore order to this chaos. Now, the idea of legalizing heroin can sound quite shocking. And I want to explain how it leads to the solution to the opioid crisis in a second. It can sound quite shocking because mostly what people picture as legalization meaning is like, you know, the model we have for alcohol or in increasingly cannabis, where you go into a store and buy it. Now, very few people, there's some hardcore libertarians, but very few people, not me, and I'm pretty sure not you, are in favour of that model of legalisation for heroin, right? We don't think there should be a heroin island in CVS where right. we just go and buy it, right? The, <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, the, 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 the way it works in Switzerland, the model that was set up by President Dreyfus, and it's very revealing, by the way, she lives opposite one of the clinics now that, that does this. So if you've got a heroin problem, you're assigned to a clinic. You go into that clinic, you have to go at seven o'clock in the morning because Swiss people believe in doing things insanely early. This is a constant point of disagreement between me and my dad. You turn up at seven o'clock in the morning, 
You go in, um, you're giving your heroin there. It's medically pure heroin, not the contaminated garbage you buy on the streets. Um, you have to use it there. You can't take it out with you, partly because they don't want you to sell it on and partly because they want to watch you and make sure you're okay. Um, then you leave and you go to your job because you're given loads of support to find work and housing and you're given a lot of therapy to deal with the deeper underlying reasons why you're using the drugs in the first place. And this was something that really interested me and, and surprised me, frankly, when I was spending time in the clinic in Geneva, because they will give you any dose that you want, except for one that will kill you. And there is never any pressure to cut back. And yet, Almost everyone does cut back over time and stop. So I was there 15 years after this clinic. Had, I think it was 13 years after this clinic had opened. And there were like, I think, three people who were still on it from the start. Everyone else had stopped. And I remember saying to the psychiatrist who runs the clinic, Rita Mangi, well, how can that be? Because we're told the drug takes you over. You need more and more of it. If you had an unlimited supply, why would you cut back? And she, she looked at me like I was stupid and said, well, we help them to have better lives. And as your life gets better, you don't want to be anesthetized so much. And that's why they chose to cut back, right? And this fits with a lot of other evidence we know about addiction that we can talk about if you like. But just to say the results of this program, it in the 15 years since they set up this program, there have been zero heroin overdose deaths on the legal program. That's zero, not one person. There's been a huge fall in heroin overdose deaths outside the legal program because people with addiction problems have transferred into it. This program is much cheaper than what they did before. It's much cheaper to prescribe someone heroin and give them therapy and support them than it is to arrest them, put them on trial and imprison them, right? Um, and Swiss people are really conservative. If Switzerland, I mean, my my Swiss relatives make Donald Trump look like Oprah, right? Um, and yet Swiss people had a referendum after this program had been in place for two years to vote on it and 70 percent of them voted to keep these policies to keep heroin legal not because swiss people are so compassionate and they're not really it was it was such a big fall in crime like street crime massively fell street prostitution ended um it was just much cheaper and and, and restored order exactly as president dreyfus had promised it would and I think this is really important for us to learn about the opioid crisis. So with the opioid crisis, what we do is the opposite of the Swiss crisis, what the Swiss solution. So let's think about what the Swiss solution is. Firstly, prescribe the safest possible form of the drug to a person who's become addicted. Secondly, give them a huge amount of support to turn their lives around and deal with the reasons why they're addicted in the first place. What we do is the exact opposite. If your doctor finds out that you're using Oxy because you're addicted and not for, you know, just physical pain relief, your doctor is by law required to cut you off. If they don't, they can go to prison as drug dealers. It's happened to lots of them, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. um, secondly, instead of giving you support to turn your life around, we give you a criminal record. We shame you. We punish you. We actually put barriers between you and reconnecting to a normal life. We've got to understand why this crisis is happening. If you want to understand why people are using so many painkillers, You've got to understand why they're in such pain, such deep and profound pain. My new book, Lost Connections, is partly about this. The people who've done the best study on this, and they'd be great people for you to talk to, Sir Angus Dayton and Anne Case, call these deaths of despair, right? Where are these deaths happening? They're also in the places 
where non-opioid-based suicides are worst. They're also in the places where antidepressant prescriptions are highest. They're places where people have been stripped of the things that make life meaningful. This is a spiritual crisis. This is a social crisis. And what we're doing is we're then taking people who are in terrible pain and are trying to soothe that pain in a way that is in, indeed dangerous. And we're inflicting more pain and more suffering on them. And we're surprised it doesn't work. All the places that have succeeded in reducing these crises are places like Switzerland that have done the opposite, that have uh, created a legal route to the drug, which is, of course, with heroin, not just buying it, um, and given people massive amounts of love and support to deal with that underlying pain. That's such a uh, different way of thinking about drug use and addiction than we have here. Anytime that I... Uh, mention, you know, heroin-assisted treatment, which is what the Swiss model is, and there are many places around the world that are doing that now. Um, but, you know, the, the thought for people of, wait, what? You know, giving people heroin, this just sounds so crazy. Um, mm. and, and it took my own mind a long time to, to get my head around kind of, you know, that there, you know, heroin is used in some hospitals as a, you know, pain reliever, just like, you know, morphine, you know, other things that, that I have taken, you know, after surgery or whatnot. Um, and our, our, our understanding of heroin comes so much through the lens of drug prohibition. So we, when we think heroin, we think addicted person homeless on the street. Uh, we don't think this is this is a chemical composition that is an opioid pain reliever that, you know, its brothers and sisters and aunts and uncle drugs are prescribed every day across this country. Uh, but we understand this one very differently because of our experience of seeing it through drug prohibition. Um, and that, so what was helpful for me kind of in, in, in thinking um, about, Okay, how, okay, can, can I support heroin-assisted treatment? Uh, was kind of thinking back to the alcohol prohibition example and thinking mm. through, um, okay, you know, the thought first in my mind is, how could I support the government providing heroin to people? Um, but mm. then thinking about the alcohol prohibition and thinking, well, in some ways it would be a little bit similar to during alcohol prohibition, the government saying, okay, for people who are alcoholic, we don't want you to die drinking contaminated liquor mm. off the street. So we're going to allow you to access what you used to be able to access, which is just, you know, a, a regulated, non-contaminated supply of alcohol uh, so that you stay alive and that we can help you, you know, address your addiction. Um, so really the kind of the, the, the driver for this whole approach of having clinics, you know, that, that are government sponsored where people are coming, uh, people think of that as the government's just giving people heroin. Um, it was helpful for me to kind of think about the re the, the reason why that is necessary is because the government has prohibited them from getting it from doctors or, um, through any other legal means. And so the, currently the only heroin they can access is on the street. So, Kind of the, the, the choices I see now before us are, okay, for people that are going to use heroin or people that are addicted to heroin, do we want them under the care of a doctor? Do we want them under the care of a drug dealer? And you, you look I at it that way and you go, wait a second. <laughs> well, of course I want them under the care of a doctor. 
I think that's a really what you just said is super important. And that's one layer of analysis, which is essential to explain to people. I think there's another layer of analysis, which is kind of parallel to that and equally important in explaining something like, um, you know, heroin treatment. Um, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why people find the idea of prescribing heroin so shocking is because of the story we have in our heads about what, what addiction actually is. And this is something that I found really challenging. As we've talked about before, we had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And um, I was really surprised when I started looking at the science of addiction to learn how, how much I had misunderstood, in fact, what is what I'd seen in front of me. So most people, if you said to them, let's say heroin, what causes heroin addiction? They would have looked at you like, look like, you like an idiot. And you'd say, well, obviously, heroin causes heroin addiction, right? The clue's in the name, dummy. Um, we've been told this story for 100 years that's become totally part of our, our common sense. Um, so we think if you and I kidnapped, you know, the next 20 people to walk past your studio in, in Jackson, Mississippi, and we injected them all with heroin every day for a month, at the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There's chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. They'd have this incredible physical hunger for heroin, and, and that's what addiction is, right? That's what I believed. Um, and, and I only really began to be challenged on this when, actually, when Gabor Mate, who you know as well, a wonderful doctor in, in Toronto, and several other doctors said to me, hang on a minute, in Britain, where I'm from, if I, I'm in Britain at the moment, I'm about to come back to the US, but if I stepped out, of this studio now, of this interview now, and I get hit by a truck uh, and I break my hip, I'll be taken to hospital and I'll be given lots of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is given in British hospitals for pain relief all the time. Diamorphine is heroin. Uh, it's, the med it's medically pure heroin. It's actually much more potent heroin than you would buy on the streets in the United States. If anyone listening to this has a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother has taken a lot of heroin, right? If what we think about addiction is right, that it's caused just by the exposure to the chemical hooks. What should be happening to all these people in British hospitals who had been given heroin the whole time? Significant numbers of them should be leaving hospital as heroin addicts, right? This has been studied very carefully. It virtually never happens. And when I learned that, I just thought, that can't be true. That doesn't make sense. How could you have someone who's been given strong heroin in a hospital bed who doesn't become addicted and someone in the alleyway outside taking weaker heroin in the, you know, as a homeless person who does, how can that be? And I only really began to understand it when I went and interviewed your friend of mine, the incredible man called Professor Bruce Alexander, who explained to me, I went to see him in Vancouver, explained to me that the story that we have in our heads about addiction, that it's caused primarily or entirely by the chemical hooks, comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners can try them at home if they feel a little bit sadistic. You take the rat, you take a rat, and you put it in a cage, and you give it two water bottles. One is just water, and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself quite quickly. So there you go. That's, that's our story, right? In the 1970s, Professor Alexander, who'd been working with people with addiction problems, looked at these experiments and said, well, hang on a minute. You put the rat alone in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except use this drug. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage that he called 
rat park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of cheese, they've got loads of coloured balls. Anything a rat can want in life is there in rat park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And of course, they try both. They don't know what's in them. This is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drug water. They hardly ever use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So you go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they their lives, when they don't have the things that make life meaningful, to none when they do have the things that make life meaningful for rats. Um, there's lots of human examples that we can talk about if you like, but to me, this tells us the opposite of addiction is is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. That the, the, the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. And this helps us to understand why the war on drugs has failed so disastrously when it comes to addiction. Sometimes people say the war on drugs doesn't work when it comes to addiction. The truth is much worse. It makes the problem worse. I think about in Arizona, I went out with a group of women who are made to go out on a chain gang wearing T-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public mock them and jeer at them. It's not true to say that doesn't work for those women. That makes their addictions worse. They're even more traumatised, they're even more broken, they're even more disconnected. And of course, when they leave the prison, they've got criminal records, so it's much harder for them to find work, to get back to a normal life, or indeed to establish for the first time a normal life. And I think once you understand that, again, you can see... Oh, well, what's happening in Switzerland is an important part of it is you give someone the drugs. So they don't have to go to criminal gangs. They don't get the filthy contaminated version where they don't even know how much of it is actually heroin. And they can have all, all sorts of variable doses, which can be very dangerous. That's part of it. But another part of it is. See, if you think that addiction is caused by the heroin, then the idea of giving people heroin sounds crazy. Once you understand that that chemical hooks are real, but they're a relatively small part of addiction. Most of what's going on is actually the deep and profound pain the individual is in. Then you can see that a model where you give someone the drug, but you also give them massive amounts of love, support and connection to deal with the reasons why they're using the drug. You can see why that package begins to work. Now, giving the heroin is important giving it in a medical environment is important. It's a safer form of the drug than not getting it for criminals, all the reasons we gave. But to me, it's the second bit of the Swiss project that's as important. It's also saying, okay, but why are you in this pain? How can we give you practical help to get out of this pain? This pain, and I think about so many people I met in, say, Monadnock in New Hampshire, one of the epicenters of the opioid crisis. What do they need? Right? They don't need to be told a fantasy that we can eradicate these drugs, right? We can even keep drugs out of our prisons where we pay people to walk around the walled perimeter the whole time. We are never going to keep drugs out of uh, the 3,000-mile southern border of the United States. It's impossible, right? Uh, it's inconceivable. That's a fantasy. It's a fantasy as ridiculous as the communist idea that you could get rid of people wanting to make money. Um, but what we can do is reduce the terrible pain that people in addiction problems are in and make sure that the drug supply is as safe as it can possibly be, which is not to say it will ever be safe. Alcohol isn't safe, right? right? Cars aren't safe. There are all sorts of things in our society that contain risk. But what we do is we minimise the risk. We have air belts and seat bags and speed limits and DUIs. And, you know, we can, we can, we can, we can build in things that minimise and reduce that risk and that deal with the terrible spiritual pain that is the driver of addiction in the first place. 
That's such an interesting um, point. And really that that point about kind of what is driving addiction and how much harm, how much exponential harm the drug war is doing yeah. uh, to people. It, you know, it's not kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other. It's actually creating more of the risk factors, more of the drivers for, yeah. you know, drug use and addiction. Um, I talked to a woman uh, early on in, in my kind of learning about this who said, you know, I went to 13 different uh, treatment centers. And only at this last treatment center did they ever deal with the reasons why I was using drugs. All of the trauma from my childhood, all of the pain of my, you know, very, you know, abusive family situation. Um, and I just thought, I thought back to that, that TED talk I'd seen of yours and go, this is what she's talking about. She's, she's talking about that when she was in those other treatment centers, she said, I knew I was going to go back to using because I couldn't stand to not use with all of the feelings that I had. Uh, and when, you know, I did trauma informed therapy to actually deal with the traumas of my life, now she's been sober for several years and has finally been able to work through the drivers of that addiction. So for her, even, even there, <laughs> she could, she could see in her own mind that, you know, th- the drug is there. I need the drug because I can't, be present uh, in my life without the drug. I don't know what to do with all of those experiences and memories and feelings. And when she finally went through the very extremely difficult work of facing all of those harms, um, she's been able to live, you know, in sobriety since then. So one of the interesting things uh, about now kind of, you know, working in this advocacy and helping more people be thinking about, you know, how we can change this um, is I so we're in Mississippi and uh, born and raised here. I have been, and I thought there would be, uh, I thought there would be far fewer people who had ever thought about doing anything different than I've actually found. Mm. So I've actually found there's a lot of people that are quietly uh, realizing this isn't worked, hasn't worked, it's not going to work. You know, we need to. Uh, you know, they're at all different places. Some of them are, you know, all the way, you know, where I am of uh, legal regulated market. Let's, you know. Uh, treated in the way that reduces harm the most, like we do with alcohol and you know cigarettes, different kinds of regulations for different kinds of substances, um, and some of them just have realized you know what we're doing hasn't worked, and they they aren't sure yet what um, what the the result is. But most of them agree that using the criminal justice system for it uh, has been an, an, a total failure and has, has made the problem uh, worse. In spite of you know certainly when I was supporting that, I thought it was making it better. That's why, you know, I was supporting it. So Mm -hmm. even just seeing my own experience here in Mississippi of talking to people and hearing so many people who I would have never thought would have been supportive say, you know, uh, one attorney emailed me and he said, you know, I, I, I totally agree with you, but I've I've never told anyone that, but my wife, (laughs) I thought this is, you know, this is what I hope to do. I hope to elevate this conversation so that he's talking about it with people, not just his wife. Um, so, you know, here's somebody born and raised in, you know, a, a rural Mississippi town who has, you know, just looked at what's happening in his own town and said, this is nuts. Uh, you know, we're, we're not helping anything. We should have a legal regulated market. Um, so, so that, that kind of experience of what I see here, which is there's actually more movement on it. And as, as the movement here grows, more and more people are publicly you know, willing to voice their support for that. Is that what you're seeing in your work as you travel around the world and talk with other people that are working towards reform is kind of this, uh, there is a, a, people are 
readier than maybe they have been in the past to hear that there's a better way. Um, and that movement is gaining steam in other places, too, even as it uh, gains support here in Mississippi. Yeah, you, I think you're a, re- a really inspiring example, Christina, uh, and the people you're working with of how opinion is shifting on this. And when I, you know, obviously a big part of what you and I believe is that we should never write off anyone with addiction problems. But mm-hmm. one of the things that, that writing Chasing the Scream taught me is actually you never write off anyone, including people who appear to be your political opponents. I think all the time about a wonderful man called Philip Owen, who was the conservative mayor of Vancouver, who taught me something so profound. Um, so in the year 2000 in Vancouver, there was a homeless street addict called Bud Osborne who I got to know years later. And he lived in a notorious part of Vancouver called the Downtown East Side, which has a, had at that time and, and still has a huge open drug scene. Just At that time, it was like a nightmare. People just, again, injecting in the neck, in public, just horrendous scene. Loads of people were dying. Um, and one day, Bud heard that another friend of his had died. And he thought, I can't just stand here and do nothing while all my friends die. But as he would have put it then, I'm, I'm a homeless junkie. What am I going to do? And one day, Bud had an idea. Um, at that time, um, the police were cracking down very hard on the people with addiction problems on the downtown east side. So people, when they were going to use heroin or whatever the drug they were using was, they would hide, right, in dumpsters or in abandoned areas. But, of course, if you're hiding and you start to overdose, no one can get you help and they just find your body. So Bud had this idea one day. He decided, um, he gathered together a group of the homeless people with addiction problems, and he said, you know what we should do? Let's just draw a timetable. Um, And when we're not using, which is most of the time even for quite hardcore addicts, we'll just go and look in the places where we know we use. And if someone's overdosing, we'll call an ambulance. People there were quite sceptical, but they would like Bud, and they were like, okay, we'll give it a go. And over the next three months, the death toll on the downtown east side started to really significantly fall. And that was obviously a great thing because people who would have died were living. But also it meant the people, you know, the people with addiction problems there started to think, oh, maybe we're not the pieces of garbage everyone says we are. Maybe we can do something. Uh, so they decided to set up a group. It was called VANDU, the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users. And they were like, what could we do? So they had, Bud went to the local library and he had learned that in, uh, in, in, in Germany, they had opened safe injection sites where people could go and use their drugs and be monitored by nurses. And that this had massively reduced the death toll. So Bud was like, OK, we're going to do that. We'll, we'll persuade Vancouver to do that. But there had been nothing like this in North America in 70 years, right? Uh, so Bud was like, OK, we're going to persuade our mayor. The mayor at the time was this conservative mayor called Philip Owen, who was, you know, a right-wing guy from a very rich family who'd never known anyone with addiction problems. The kind of comparison point would be Mitt Romney, maybe. Um, And he had actually run for office saying all the local people with addiction problems should be taken and detained at the local military base in Chilliwack and never let out. That was his position, right? But they're like, we'll persuade him. So what they did is they, (laughs) they built a coffin and they wrote on the coffin, who will die next, Filippo, in before you open a safe injection site? And everywhere Philip Owen went in public, he was followed by a group of addicts carrying a coffin, asking him who would die next. Um, and 
Every time he spoke in public, one of the addicts and members of Landu would stand up and say, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injection site? One time, Dean Wilson, one of them, stood up and said, do you remember Julia, who asked you who will die next before you open a safe injection site? Turned out to be her, because you haven't done it. Uh, and one day, turning to his credit, after this had been going on for a few years, Philip Owen just said, who are these people? What is this? And he decided to go and meet loads of them. He went to the downtown east side. He thought people who used drugs and addiction problems were just kind of people who partied too hard, were indulging themselves, were like parasites. It blew his mind. He had no idea what their lives were like. He went to meet Milton Friedman, the conservative Nobel Prize winning economist. He was very good on these issues. And he came back, Philip Owen, and he had a press conference. He had the chief of police, the coroner, and a representative of the addicts. He said, I'm never going to speak about addiction again without having these guys with me, because they know much better than I do. We're going to open the first safe injection site in North America. We're going to have the most compassionate drug policies in North America. Things are going to change around here. Just you wait and see. So they opened the first safe injection site. And Philip Owen's Conservative Party was so horrified, they deselected him as their candidate. And his political career ended. But a more kind of liberal candidate who believed in keeping the site won the election and it was, in fact, remained open. And I remember, so an, and it had an incredible effect. Um, average life expectancy on the downtown east side increased by 10 years in the decade that followed. Um, and overdose deaths fell by 80%, wow. 80%. Staggering. I mean, you just don't get falls like that, except when a war ends, which is what this was. Yeah. And I remember when I went to go and see Philip Owen, you know, who would have been such an unlikely and was such an unlikely person to be our ally. I sat with him in a cafe on the downtown east side and he told me it was the proudest thing he'd ever done. And he'd sacrificed his entire political career all over again to do this. He said, how many times in your life do you get to save the lives of thousands of really vulnerable people? And I thought a lot about Philip Owen and I thought a lot about Bud, you know, who, who started this movement. After I got to know him, Bud died. He was only in his early 60s, but he'd been a homeless street addict during a drug war it takes a toll on you and when bud died they shut down the streets of the downtown east side this place where he'd lived as a homeless person and they had this amazing memorial service for him and, and there were loads of people in that crowd who knew that they were alive because of what bud had started and because they had joined this fight and i remember thinking that day you know it's easy to get disheartened in this fight Every single person listening to your podcast is more powerful than Bud was that day, the day he started this, right? Yeah. Um, by virtue of the fact they have a device on which to listen to Absolutely. this, right? Yeah. Um, Bud didn't sit there thinking, you know, this is really hard. I can't do this. He didn't think someone else is going to deal with this. He thought, you know, I'll start where I stand. If you've got nothing else, you've got a voice. You've got a human voice to use love and compassion to persuade the people around you. Um, and he started where he was, and he persuaded the people next to him. And that started a, a ripple effect that persuaded many other people. Um, and, 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 you know, that, what they achieved will never be taken away now. The Canadian Supreme Court, that there was a Conservative government led by Stephen Harper that wanted to shut down this injection site. And it got appealed all the way to the Canadian Supreme Court, which ruled that people with addiction problems have a right to life, and that includes a safe place to use drugs. That will never be taken away now. 
and I think a lot about something you and I have talked about before, Christina, which is, you know, there was, um, there's this statue that's been built here in London. It's of, uh, it's just unveiled last year. It's of um, one of the women, Emmeline Pankhurst, who first argued that women should be given the right to vote in Britain. And she was tortured and she was imprisoned and she was beaten down. And, uh, and obviously she prevailed. And there's now this incredible statue of her directly opposite the Houses of Parliament, in between statues of all the men who tried to stop her and didn't want to give her the vote, right? Right next to Winston right. Churchill, who didn't want to give her the vote, right? Which would have really annoyed Winston Churchill. And in her, she had this slogan that um, she, she's holding it in the sign, in, in the statue. And this is, it's a banner that she held up. And it said, courage calls to courage everywhere which is such a, every time I'm walking through central London, I go and look at it. And I think this is such a profound message, right? One person being brave, like Bud was brave, inspires people in such different places. You know, Chasing the Scream has been translated into Farsi, the language in Iran. And I remember saying to the translator, you know, it has to be smuggled in Iran. It's not legal to publish it there. And I was saying to the translator, why did you want to translate this book? And he said it was the story about Bud that had inspired him. I remember thinking, well, Bud would never have imagined that day on the downtown east side of Vancouver that 20 years later he would be inspiring someone in Iran, right? But I think about what that woman said, courage calls to courage everywhere. Bravery is contagious, right? At the moment we're in this terrible war, this war that's been going on for 100 years. It's killed a conservative estimate, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, um, almost certainly millions, um, and it's hard. And every day the war continues, more and more people die. But courage calls to courage everywhere. You know, I think about how you've inspired people. I think about so many of the, the people I met all over the world who are being inspired by each other. And we know the evidence, right? We know that ending this war and moving to policies based on regulation, order, love and compassion work much better. They're not perfect. There's still problems in places that have done that, but it massively reduces the problem. And lots of people who today are dying in the United States or having horrific lives could recover and have good lives. And they will achieve things that we can't imagine now, right? Right. They'll write songs that we can't imagine. They'll write novels we can't imagine reading at the moment. They'll write, they'll build centers that give love and help and support to other people. We, I really, I'm sure we can get there and we will get there. But every person who joins the fight means that we'll get there a day sooner. And that means more people will live and have good lives. And that's what I I think about is, you know, how uh, if what I do can somehow move this one day sooner, that's people that are alive. It's families that aren't destroyed. It's people that have gotten help instead of criminalization. It's, you know, uh, there's just so much at stake. There's there's lives, uh, lives in terms of life and death. Then there's lives in terms of, you know, thriving or trauma and and brokenness. And that's what I want to be part of. I think of that quote often also um, because it's not easy to go against what we've always done. You know, here in the South, we have a saying, you know, we don't do that here. (laughs) We don't think (laughs) about these things here. We don't talk about these things here. That's just not what we do. Um, And yet courage calls to courage everywhere. And there is a way that all of us have a voice and we can use that voice to really bring 
hope and healing. So we have been talking to Johan Hari, author of Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. You can access more of Johan's work, including his newest book, Lost Connections, at johanhari.com. That's J-O-H-A-N-N-H-A-R-I.com. You can email us here at the podcast at podcast at enditforgood.com. I'm your host, Christina Dent, with my co-host and producer, Mike Madison. Thanks for joining us as we continue the journey towards evidence-based drug solutions so we can preserve life and help more people improve their lives. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? By changing one mind at a time. Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.